0: Started with one, one, and continued with many, with many lives reborn, reborn, the fearful made courageous, courageous to march against the gates of hell, hell, to trample them, trample them. We are heroes who have been sent. Well, Welcome, good to see you this weekend. Well, welcome, those of you who are joining us from off-site somewhere, a campus, or uh, maybe uh, on the internet, or one of the venues. We're glad that you're along also. You having a good weekend? Are you, really? I, uh, I probably look a little bit red. Some of you already mentioned that. You wouldn't believe how much work I went through to look as good as I do right now. I went fishing, and I forgot to wear sunscreen, and I put my, bat, my hat on backwards, And so I have a racing stripe that's white right through here, and then everything else is red. But get over it. It'll be in style about a year from now. We're in a new mini-series that we're starting this week. We're continuing to track through Acts, and we kind of break it down into small series as we kind of track with what the uh, original church was up to and what they're doing. And we're going to study a story. And the story that we're going to study this weekend is the most pivotal moment and pivotal story in the book of acts other than the filling of the holy spirit uh, in acts chapter 2 now before we get into that story i want to tell you a story uh, from my childhood most of you know i grew up in a pastor's home and missionaries were kind of our heroes they were the heroes and what was cool about being in a pastor's home back in those days is we would have missionaries come through and they wouldn't stay in hotels. They'd stay in our house. And so usually I'd give up my bedroom or my sister would give up her bedroom and and, and we'd get to kind of hang out at mealtime with missionaries as they told their stories. And boy, did they have stories. I mean, uh, they'd talk about living in, uh, you know, uh, clay or mud huts with thatched roofs with spiders and all kinds of things. And they'd tell about, you know, encounters with pythons that were as big as tree limbs. And I remember one missionary, uh, probably several, uh, brought the, kind of the skins of some pythons that they had encountered and all of that. And they would lay them out on the altar area at the church, 20 feet and, and larger. And it was incredible. And it was quite an experience. Now, it was both good and bad. Because I found out a little later as I was, you know, following the Lord, it was hard for me to go all in in my relationship with Christ because I kind of had this idea that if I surrendered to God, it meant everything, which it does, and that God would immediately at that point send me to Africa, put me in a mud hut with spiders, which I hate, and snakes, which just, you know, I mean, some some people like them. I don't. But I got through that. I remember at eight years old, very vividly, when my father first told our family and then he told the church that a missionary that we supported, Joseph J.W. Tucker, had been martyred in the Belgian Congo. First martyr I'd ever heard of. Somebody that we knew. What had happened is they were having a civil war and Um, everybody was asked to leave. He stayed. He knew the risks that he was going on. Back in those days, a lot of times the missionaries would ship their stuff. Rather than in a container, they'd ship it in a wooden coffin to wherever they were going, signifying that they planned to die in the place that God had called them. J.W. Tucker stayed with his family. A few days later, a, a mob grabbed him. They grabbed several... Uh, foreigners who were there. They took him into the city where they were at and the family went with him. And they beat him to death. Slowly. Forty-five minutes it took for him to die. They said he screamed out. They heard his screams all over. And they also heard him saying again and again, Father, I forgive them. I forgive them. When he finally died, they took his body and they put it in the back of of some type of a truck. And they drove an hour or two away, and threw his body uh, in a river called the Boma Conde River, which was infested by crocodiles. The crocodiles ate what remained of him. I remember that story um, just getting a hold of my heart back then like it got a hold of my heart as I sat down and remembered it this week. I'll never forget Dad talking about it. The very first martyr that we knew he was a spirit-filled man. Now, there's a similar story that we're going to study this weekend in uh, Acts chapter 7, and it's the death of Stephen, a spirit-filled man. We got acquainted with Stephen last week when uh, uh, the church encountered uh, organizational administrative problems. And the leaders said, hey, pick out from among yourselves seven men who are, are uh, well-respected in the community, who are full of the Holy Spirit, and men with great wisdom. And Stephen was one of them. And so he uh, uh, came forward and he began to serve tables to widows who were underserved at that time. Well, as, as time went along, Stephen didn't just serve tables, but he began to be a powerful witness Jesus Christ. In fact, his witness was so powerful that some religious types came and tried to argue with him, but they were astonished and amazed by his wisdom, by how he could share the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what they did is they went and they got two or three people and they kind of bribed them to tell lies about Stephen. And they brought him before the Sanhedrin, the the, uh, religious court, and they accused him of blasphemy, which was kind of a catch-all Kind of a, 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 a charge. There were a lot of things that fell under that. And So the chief priest said to Stephen, he said, Why don't you defend yourself and you can tell uh, your story? And so, and so he does. And he lays out his case and it's brilliant. It's the first 56 verses of Acts chapter 7. I'm not going to go verse by verse through it. I'd love for you to read it. It comes again from a Jewish perspective to Jewish people. And he basically condenses all of the history of the people of God and shows how God was at work through various prophets throughout. He affirms his allegiance to God, that he's not a blasphemer. And then he confronts them. And he tells them that their worship is not worship of God. It's self-worship. And that they rejoice in the work of their own hands rather than of God's hands. And he says to them, he says, you know what? You're just like your father's who came before you, who rejected every prophet that God sent. And you yourself did it with Jesus Christ. Now, they were, to say the least, not excited about his speech. It doesn't go over well. In fact, we're going to read kind of the response and what happens there in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54. It said, The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists and raised. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily up into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears, and drowning out His voice with their shouts, they rushed at Him, and they dragged Him out of the city and they began to stone him. The official witnesses took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. It's the first we'll hear of Saul. It's certainly not the last. It's a young man who later uh, changes his name and has an encounter with God, and we won't go there. But it says, As they stoned him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Chapter 8. Saul was one of the official witnesses of the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers except the apostles fled into Judea and Samaria. a lot of people there are thousands and thousands and thousands probably tens of thousands of believers in jerusalem by now and it says because of the death of this man and the persecution that began in that moment every believer except the apostles fled and went to all parts of the earth then it says some godly men came and buried stephen with loud weeping so in the story, a spirit-filled man dies for the cause. He's the first martyr. And through his death, the church is sent. Now, honestly, Stephen's story, as I read it this week, is not exceptional in the sense that he's an exception. You read the story, it's easy to see that Stephen, or see Stephen as a, as a super saint who died for his faith. There's somebody way out there that's unlike me but he's not he's just a guy a spirit-filled guy who was waiting tables he he wasn't an apostle but his faithfulness in the small things the waiting of the tables translated into faithfulness in a greater thing that God used him in a way that he probably would not have chosen or he would not have dreamed but he was ready when the time came And his life shows us that our commitment to God should be consistent no matter what the circumstances. We ought to live our lives every day in such a way that would enable us to face the hardships of life with the same steadfastness we face the small things of life. At the end of the day, Stephen is just a spirit-filled man who waited tables, but one day was called to die for his faith, and his, his death is the central event that God used to spread the gospel to people who wouldn't otherwise hear as the church was sent. And here's what I want to do. I want to study this story, and I want to study it from our perspective. And, 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 and as we do, what I, what I want to look at is what can we learn from the death of a Spirit-filled man? Let me give you two or three things that I saw this week. First thing we can learn is that spirit-filled people can find peace when others are in the middle of turmoil. See, there's this incredible contrast in the story between Stephen and the mob. They, they, they react uh, to something he said with a rage. I mean, it's just incredible how that religious people could do this. Normal everyday people react with with a rage as to what he said in a frenzy that this mob action takes effect and they stone him and stone him to death. At the same time, Stephen, the one being stoned, is serene. He's in control. He's sustained by the Lord. And it's a picture, really, of the contrast between a hostile Christ-hating world and a gentle, loving, spirit-filled Christ follower. As I studied that this week, I had several questions about this passage. And one of them was this. What was up with the religious establishment's reaction? I mean, how could they go from these religious people and pious people and all of this, and how could they react to something that he said in such a way as that they would kill somebody and go into fly into this rage. As I looked at it and studied it, I I think I know the answer. I think the problem, especially as you read the first 54 verses, is the fact that Stephen is challenging their power and they're afraid of losing control. And so they lash out. Now, without trivializing the death of Stephen, I just want to say that that potential is in all of us when our when our power is challenged. We all tend to lash out when we feel like we're losing control. Example, have you ever lashed out at someone when they cut you off in traffic? You wonderful, spirit-filled people. Have you ever? I was driving not long ago, here in the Charleston area, and I was on a highway, and... There was a lot of traffic and my mind was somewhere else and I think I slowed down traffic for a while. In other words, I got beside a slower car and I didn't speed up and I didn't notice that somebody was right on my bumper. And finally, you know, this is probably a minute and a half, maybe five minutes, okay? <laughs> and so finally, I, you know, I clear this truck or whatever it was. And this guy behind me pulls over right next to me. And I look over and here's, here's a normal, just kind of a normal Mount Pleasant-y, uh, you know, guy looks me in the eye and gives me the finger with rage. You can just see it. So what did I do? Your spirit filled, or at that moment depleted pastor, immediately puts his foot through the accelerator because I feel a rage rising up in me. I think males are more kind of uh, prone to this, if you guys know what I mean. It was stupid, but I felt like this guy was challenging my power. He was challenging my manhood. And so this rage comes up inside of me. I'm going to catch him. I don't know what I'm going to do if I catch him. In that moment, I, I most needed to pray a prayer, and I think I did, as I noticed it. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to be faithful in this small moment of testing so that I'll be ready for the bigger tests in life. Because that's what it was. We've all been there. When things don't go our way, when the lines last too long wherever it happens to be. See, the trivial frustrations of life remind us that our contentment is often dependent on our comfort level. Did you get that? Our contentment in life is often dependent on our comfort level. If I'm comfortable, I'm content. And here's the question. Do we trust God enough to be faithful when our comfort level is threatened? Do we? But... Stephen full of the holy spirit i love this for a lot of reasons there's just so much in this you know stephen didn't have to make any adjustments to his life to die think about that you know oftentimes it, 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 what we'll do is you know we see it in the movies or when you go and you do as we do often you go to a hospital room and and you pray with someone who's in their last moments and you say things like, you know, it's time to make peace with God. It's time to make sure that you get things right with God. You need to prepare yourself. You know what? Stephen didn't have to do that. He didn't have to have this kind of this last minute getting things right. Uh, uh, he was ready. He lived his life ready. In chapter 6, when he was chosen as one who would wait tables, it said, P, um, uh, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. In this moment of death, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he was ready. So we need to see the small challenges to our comfort levels as tests to help us live a spirit filled life. Because spirit filled people can find peace when there's turmoil in everybody else. That's one of the ways that you know that someone is full of the Holy Spirit. This is the second thing that I saw there, and that's this. Spirit-filled people can see things that others can't see. They can see things that others can't see. Would you agree that this is as bad a circumstances as anybody could ever face? Are right? you standing there. They're going to throw rocks at him. They've already begun. He's going to die. So what did he do? In these horrible circumstances, what did he do? This is important. What does a spirit-filled man or woman do when the circumstances... Are rough When the economic indicators are all pointing down, not just for the country, but in your own family, in your own business, in your own life. When the doctor's report isn't good. When you've been sick longer than you want to. And maybe it looks like it's not going to change anytime soon. When you don't make the cut. When someone you love blows it again. What does a spirit-filled person do? Or when somebody you love Decides that they don't love you. What do you do? This one we can learn from Stephen. You do what he did in the worst of circumstances. What did he do? If you read the scripture again, it says, he gazed steadily toward heaven. He gazed steadily upward into heaven. So the first thing that you do when you face rough circumstances is get your eyes off the circumstances. Okay? You need to look up. You need to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What did he see? It says, And he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus. And it was important because for just a few moments, at least in this horrible circumstances, he kind of lost consciousness of things that were going on around him, and that was a good thing. And he saw Jesus. And when you see Jesus, and you really see Jesus in your circumstances, it changes everything. You remember that God has your best in mind. When you're thinking worst-case scenario thoughts, when the bad news comes, whatever it happens to be, might be a little thing, might be a big thing, and you're thinking, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, and you're looking at the circumstances, then you look up and you see Jesus. You remember that all things work together for good to those who are part of his family. You remember as Saul or Paul, as he was later called, later wrote that nothing can separate you from the love of God. You remember that if God is for you, who can be against you? When you really see Jesus, when you when you stop and you take your eyes off of whatever it is and you look up and you see Jesus you remember that whatever you're going through is temporary. And it's trivial, especially in light of eternity. So when there's uncertainty around you, breathe a prayer. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Let me see what others can't see. So a Spirit-filled person has a peace when everybody else is in turmoil, they can see things that others can't see. And there's a third thing that I saw in this story, and that's this. Spirit-filled people see death differently than others do. They see death differently than others do. And there's several kind of aspects of this that I kind of want to hit on. It, let me give you the first one. Spirit-filled people, and, and, and it's hard, but they plow through and they do it. They can see that God has a greater purpose in your death. And sometimes you don't even know what it is. Remember the story that I told you at the beginning of our time together? J.W. Tucker, the missionary who was the first martyr that I ever knew or saw? Well, that's all I was going to tell you because that's all I knew about the story. And so what I did is I tried to research just a little bit this week, talk to some people who knew him and research some things on his life. And an amazing thing happened. Uh, And 45 years later, here's, here's what we know. Remember his body was thrown into the Bama Candy River where crocodiles ate him. And that was the last thing that we knew. Well, the Bama Candy River flows through the middle of the Mangbeto tribe, a people virtually without the gospel. It's in a, a, a very northern part of uh, the, Cong- the Congo became Zaire, and now I think is the Congo again. Many people had tried to share the gospel there. In fact, C.T. Studd, who's one of the most famous missionaries in Africa that ever was, went to that area, worked there, and had zero converts, none. And so he left kind of feeling defeated, and he turned it over to the um, African Inland Mission, great missions organization. And for decades they tried to get into that area, and they had no success because people were highly resistant to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were pagans. The civil wars that racked the country throughout the years finally reached this uh, Mangbetos tribe up in this area in the, the Congo. And um, there was violence and there was dissension and all kinds of things were going on. And so the king of the Mangbetos became distressed at the, all of the violence. And he appealed to the uh, central government in Kinshasa for some help. Can you help us? Can you equip us in some way? And so the government sent a well known military man, strong man, to them called the Brigadier. It just so happened that years before, just two months before the death of missionary J.W. Tucker, he came into contact with the Brigadier and he shared Jesus with him, and the Brigadier became a Christ follower because J.W. Tucker led him to the Lord. Well, when the brigadier reached the Mangbeto tribe, he noticed that they were pagans. They wanted peace. He wanted to reach out to them um, with the gospel of Jesus Christ because he thought there is no lasting peace other than that. And so he began to share his faith and he met with absolutely no response. And then one day, he heard of a Mangbeto tradition. And the tradition was this. It said, if the blood of any man flows in our river, the Bamakandi River, you must listen to his message. And so he thought about that. And he thought about it. And suddenly it came to him. J.W. Tucker, his body had been thrown into the Bamakandi River. He had been devoured by crocodiles. And so he gathered the king and the village elders, And he told him the story of J.W. Tucker and what had happened to him and the fact that he had been thrown into their river. Crocodiles had eaten him and his blood had flowed in that river. And he said, just two months before he died, this great man told me about the message of Jesus Christ. And he preached it to me. And he said, I believed, that it changed my life. And he said, if this man were here today, he would tell you this message. And because His blood flows in your river, you must listen to it. And so they listened. And he taught. And he taught for a long time the gospel of Jesus Christ that night. Taught them what he knew. And, and then a hush fell over the crowd, they said. The Spirit of God moved and many fell to their knees weeping and many were converted. Now listen to this. If you were to go to that area 45 years later today here's what you would find you would find a civil war in fact there is holocaust going on in congo that's greater than what was in rwanda just a few years ago in the last just few years maybe 10 years between 4 and 6 million people have been killed you would go up into this area where the fighting is horrible and here's what you'd find if you walked along the bamakandi river you would walk every 15 miles you would find a church from the denomination that i grew up in that was established you would find 40 to 50 churches. You would find tens of thousands of believers who, to this day, many of them are being uh, uh, rushed into uh, 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 what, what do they call them the, the camps, uh, where, where they have to uh, go the refugee camps uh, in Uganda and Rwanda, where um, the Congo people are gathering, and you would find these Christians serving. Preaching the gospel, helping the people, helping to distribute food, food, even those who have been displaced into this area. In fact, a Bible school flourishes there in spite of the rebel efforts to destroy it. Over 45 years, thousands of people have come to know Christ and received eternal life because of the death of a spirit filled man whose blood flowed into the Bama Candy River. Is that incredible? And if you look at the story of Stephen, it says that Paul was there, or Saul was there. And we know that Saul became Paul who became the greatest evangelist that the church has ever known. And we'll talk just a little bit more about him next week. But the the facts are, did Stephen know that was going to happen? No. Did J.W. Tucker know that that would happen through his death? No. But they trusted God, that God had a greater purpose than what they saw in their life at that point. Spirit-filled people uh, know that death wasn't the final word that the mob had hoped it would be. In fact, in this story, Stephen isn't the victim. He's the winner. In fact, this story turns death on its head. Stephen has no fear of death. In fact, he sees it as a means to greater life for him as he looks and he sees heaven and that's where he's going and he's going to be with Jesus. And it's almost like when Paul says, you know what, to live is is, uh, Christ, to die is gain. I don't know which I want. I I, I go one place or the other. I'll do whatever God wants me to do. Here's the truth about death. Death is an enemy. I don't want to romanticize it. I don't want to make it heroic or glamorous. It's an enemy. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 25 says, For Christ must reign until He humbles all of His enemies beneath His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When I went to Cairo, Egypt this summer, I went to see um, in the museum the display for... King Tutankhamun, the young king, and, and all kinds of things from way back when he reigned. And um, one of the things that was very interesting to me were their footstools. And these, uh, these kings would have footstools, and on the footstools would be the names of their enemies. So it was symbolic of the fact that their enemies were under their feet. And it says that Jesus is going to reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And he says the last enemy to go is death. It's an enemy. We weren't created to die. God didn't create us in the beginning to die. That's why it's so heartbreaking when we lose a loved one and it just kind of, we, we, the grief sometimes is almost overwhelming because we were not created to die. Death is a curse that came through sin, death is an enemy. But here's another truth. Death is a conquered enemy. Let's believe with all of our mind the great truth of the Christian faith in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54. In fact, read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 out loud together with me. "'Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death.'" And the law gives sin its power. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is a conquered enemy. Romans 8.35 says this. It says, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that He no longer loves us? Listen to this. If we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry, or cold, or in danger, or threatened with death. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from His love. Death can't, and life can't. Angels can't, demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. A Spirit-filled man, a Spirit-filled woman understands that death is an enemy. They grieve when a loved one dies, but they don't grieve as those who have no hope because they understand that death is only temporary. In fact, it's not like we live life and then we die and then we move into eternal life. It's not how it happens for a spirit-filled believer. What happens for a spirit-filled believer is they come to Jesus. They become a follower of Jesus. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, they inherit eternal life. And death is just a transition, a momentary transition into the rest of life. I had a conversation last week here in the foyer at Long Point. I've had this conversation probably a hundred times in my life. Somebody says to me, good to see you. I say back to them, it's good to be seen. They say to me, it sure beats the alternative. I used to say, yeah, it sure does. But I've been thinking about that. It doesn't. It doesn't. Listen. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Spirit-filled people see death differently than others do. I've got a reminder in my office. I've told you about it before back in kind of my part of the office where other people don't come in. I'm the only one that sees it, and it's on my whiteboard. I've got a few important things written on my whiteboard. One of them is a saying by Benjamin Franklin that says, it takes a lifetime to create a reputation. It takes one act to destroy it. The second one is this. I've got two things up there. The second one is this, and I want to see them every day. Have I thought about heaven today? Because I want to tell you something. When you think about heaven, it changes how you look at the perspective that you have on today. When you think about heaven, when you see life through a viewpoint of heaven, it changes your perspective and it changes how you live. Here's the truth. God has called us all to die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another martyr for the cause said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. I'm not talking about taking your own life. That's playing God. I'm talking about the willingness to stand up and say, you know what? If the gospel costs me my life, I'm willing to do it because of what Jesus has done and because of what awaits me. So here's the question. Would you be willing to die for the gospel? Would I be willing to die for the gospel? Would anybody be willing these days to die for the gospel?
1: where being a Christian means torture, months of solitary confinement, the agony of brainwashing. This is the experience of Christianity for thousands of people around the world, and it's happening today. Pastor Hua Huiqi knows persecution well. He was recently arrested again. His family has been harassed by the Chinese authorities constantly. And even his own mother was released from prison just a little while ago. Miriam and Marzea, two young Christian women who are being held in Avon prison in Iran right now because of their faith. This is Lydia Degal and her five-year-old son Ovid. In 2008, Lydia's husband, who's a pastor, was murdered by radical Hindus. In Pakistan, 20-year-old Sandal Bibi and her father, Gulshar Masai, have been imprisoned on charges of blasphemy. For their bold witness in christ this is what's left of the fushan church in shanxi province of china that was until a mob of 400 including chinese officials barged in during worship and assaulted the believers that were gathered there 20 police officers burst in on a worship service in this church in tashkent uzbekistan they arrested seven members and confiscated all of the christian literature if all this weren't enough In 2008 alone, more than 150,000 people died for their faith in Christ. Meeting together in basements, in the woods, sometimes daring to preach on a street corner, these faithful souls counted the cost and persisted in their Christian witness, knowing full well the outcome of their actions. So are Christians still persecuted today? The answer for two-thirds of the world's population is yes. The question is, what are the rest of us gonna do about it?
0: You know, the truth is probably no one in this congregation will be asked in your lifetime to literally be a martyr for the gospel. How should we handle that? Should we feel guilty about it? I don't think so. God has called us to this place for a lot of reasons. He's resourced us in such a way that um, He can trust us to resource the rest of the world. And, and, and you'll see that as we go on through the gospel, many of those who were not under persecution and torment, they didn't feel guilty about it. They knew that that was a part of what was going on. They just prayed, they resourced, they did what they could. But I think God calls all of us to live with an attitude that says, I would die for the gospel. How about this? Am I willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel? Maybe it's this. Maybe it's like Bill Hybel's book. He says it this way. He says, Would I be willing to get up and walk across the room to share a witness with somebody that God's prompting me? Or... Would I not want to be inconvenienced with that? There may be somebody at work. There may be somebody at school. Maybe somebody in your neighborhood that God's prompting you and that that, that's the reason you're there is because He loves them. Will you be willing to be inconvenienced? Maybe rejected by going and loving them and loving them and loving them and at some point be open to the gospel. Maybe it's somebody that has values that are totally different than yours. What about with your money? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are you willing to live on less so that the least you can do is give a tithe, 10% of what God has given you to the local church so that we can carry out the mission? And then above that, above that, give even more to those who are poor or those who are in need or those who are in missions in various places of the earth. Are you willing to do that? Just live on less. I mean, that's not being called. A very tough thing when you think about people who die for the gospel. How how, how about this? How about I know I know people who are actually moving their house location into a gospel-free zone, into an area where maybe the gospel isn't as preached as much as it is there, maybe just in the same city that they're at, maybe it's a tough area. A rough area, and they're moving because they're saying, I I, want to be Jesus in this area. That's a courageous thing to do. Not everybody will do it, but it's courageous. On and on and on, on and on and on. Are you willing to die? Karen Watson was willing to die. She went on a short-term mission trip to Iraq to help with the downtrodden to bring clean water to Mosul. And her life was cut short just about four years ago by a terrorist bomb. And she wrote a letter, and she gave it to her pastor only to be read in case of her death. And I have her letter here, and I want to read it to you. She says, Dear Pastor, he read this at her funeral. You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls me, or calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory my reward, His glory my reward. The missionary heart cares more than some think is wise, risks more than some think is safe, dreams more than some think is practical, expects more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or to success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. I love you and my church family in His care. Shalom, Karen. (laughs) What would we be willing to die for? It's, It's important to know because when you know what you would die for, you have clarity on how you live today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, today, this weekend, for the message of the gospel. I thank you for the fact that you sent Jesus Christ to die for us in our place. God, I thank you for the fact that the the gospel is good news that we can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. When we're called to hardship, as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have joy in the midst of turmoil. God, I pray now that you would just apply your word to each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.